Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. How many times a day do you outright lie to yourself? Think about it. Make your list. I can make that light. I'm not that fat. I can stay up a little later. I'm too important to be fired. I have lots of friends. Are you making your list or are you just listening to me make mine? We tell kids to tell the truth because it'll be much better for them. But come on, parents. No, it wouldn't. If they were any good at lying, it would be much better for them if they could get away with it, right? I mean, free and clear versus spanking. Come on. At least in the short term, way better to get away with that lie. But... As we all discover, the truth eventually comes out, and the longer and the bigger we lie, the more it hurts when it does. On today's episode, we'll find out why we'll soon be living in the dark ages and have no power to stop it. Then we'll come face to face with the worst case, and finally we'll demand justice. So, grab some candles, stiffen that upper lip, and bang that gavel, because truth is, here we go. Well, I hate to be one of those guys that says, I told you so, but I... No, wait. Hold up a minute. No, I don't. No, in fact, I love that. I mean, who doesn't love to be proven right? I can pretend I'm some sort of holier-than-thou person on this one. So without downloading my Facebook history and searching through it, neither of which I'm going to do, a number of years ago, three, four, probably more, I don't know, I posted something about clean green energy, and how when the anti-science, borderline psychotic green movement, which has now really just become the mainstream green movement, gets us off of fossil fuels, it won't take long before they find problems with hydroelectric, wind, or solar, and they'll want us to get rid of those as well. I think I've mentioned this book before, but when it came out nearly 15 years ago, Green Hell by Steve Malloy, it outlined the desires of the Green Movement, even back then. The specifics in the book may have changed some, but the gist of the book is becoming more and more true. It it appears, if you're curious, that on Amazon you can get it on Kindle or Audible right now. I'm sure you can find a physical copy of it somewhere. The bottom line is that the overarching desire of any, probably all, of the green organizations is to save the planet, and in order to do this, they must get rid of the biggest, most destructive virus that exists, humans. Literally, the goal of every green group is for humans to not exist anymore. Now look, I believe that God is sovereign. Unless God wants man to, uh, you know, poof, be gone, they ain't going nowhere, but That doesn't stop people and organizations that don't believe in a god of any sort from doing what they can to save Mother Earth from us, from we, from from we, us, monsters. Found on phys.org, that's P-H-Y-S, phys.org, headline, Analyzing Bird Population Declines Due to Renewable Power Sources in California. (laughs) And here we are. This is a very short article. Don't worry, there's plenty to get into. So, a group of researchers representing a number of different U.S.-based institutions as part of their study chose 23 bird species that are apparently known to be at risk around alternative energy power plants. Think wind and solar. Upon collection of a large amount of data, they analyzed the data using multiple techniques, one of which was, quote, a Markov chain Monte Carlo application along with a Bayesian hierarchical modeling framework. Now, That may mean nothing to you, but... No, I'm just kidding. It literally means nothing to me either. They just had it in the article, and I I thought it was pretty cool-sounding. And, of course, cool is based on my general nerdery. Anywho, they found that 11 of the 23 studied species experienced population declines of at least 20% due to the alternative energy plants. They also found that there were forced changes to migratory patterns for several of the species, which could have longer-term negative effects on those species. Now, to me, I'd say, so what? 
I mean, I realize that all animals, bugs, humans, birds, and fish, whatever else is out there, all play a part in our ecosystem. I also believe in the butterfly effect, the idea that a small change over here could result in a massive change somewhere in the future way over there. That said, I do not buy into the claim that if we lose the blue-breasted booby, that the world collapses. The planet clearly has had mass extinction events, well, I mean, one event, right, the flood, and we've had a variety of creatures either go totally extinct, to the best of our knowledge, or very nearly so, and the planet seems to keep on ticking. I also don't believe that actions taken by humans has had, is having, or will have devastating effects on the planet, even if specific species have become endangered or had to adapt. But this isn't about me. This is about the greeny environmentalists and the unbelievable power they seem to wield in this country and a few others that have been suckered into their rhetoric and uh, general whining. The article states that although green technology is supposed to be good, it's not always literally Earth-friendly. I mean, yeah, from the production and disposal of parts and pieces to the effect it has on wildlife and the massive footprint they require, it's not really as Earth-friendly as it's promoted. But remember, those that are pushing for these kinds of policies aren't concerned with long-term consequences. They're concerned with emotional appeals and short-term virtue signaling. The article goes on to state that there is danger from rotating blades, danger from excessive heat focused by solar panels, danger from displacement, and danger from migration pattern changes. And that's just to birds. So let's take a look at a few energy sources and see what these dangers are. Let's start with the biggest of the biggest evils, oil. So on a site called wilderness.org, I found an article outlining seven ways oil and gas drilling is destroying the environment. Looking specifically at the impact on wildlife, I found this. It can ruin wildlands because it uses land, develops roads, builds buildings, etc. The land can't be used by wildlife. And even though they leave and abandon the sites eventually, quote, it can take centuries before they fully recover. They also say that since a lot of this takes place in semi-arid climates, it would take much longer and massive human intervention to fix the land again. Okay, so let's be realistic. If it's taking place in semi-arid climates, how much damage is really being done? And no, it would not take centuries for it to recover. Have you ever seen what nature can do? You leave something untouched, and in what, five years or less, you see it start creeping in? In ten years, it's taking over? In 20 years, it's completely won. I, I guarantee that these sites, once abandoned, revert back to what they were before in the span of a couple decades. They say that it can disrupt wildlife habits. And this is due to loud noises, humans, vehicles, and equipment. Wildlife, because of this, has to change what they've always done. Then they name an animal. Just the one animal, the, the pronghorn antelope in Wyoming. Apparently, they used to travel south in the winter. And, and I mean, they, they still do, but they have to navigate around some drilling equipment now. And, and some of that is noisy. So, see? I mean, again, animals are probably more adaptable than humans. They'll figure it out, or they'll change what they do. I'm not sure that humans should make decisions based on the well-worn path the antelope has mapped out in the past. That's like me not doing something in the backyard because uh, the dog likes to go that way. Yeah, well, the dog will figure it out. Finally, they say that oil spills can be deadly. Yeah, well, I mean, they sure can. I'm not going to argue that. And the last thing we want is for animals to die. Keep that in mind. The problem with this argument is that although large oil spills can be locally devastating, the impact is relatively short and the occurrence of an incident is very infrequent, thus the huge media attention it gets when it happens. In fact, I looked up the largest oil spills in history. Do you realize that the last major oil spill that's occurred was the one in 2010, the BP Deepwater Horizon well blowout? I mean, I could go into all the layers of failures that caused that to happen, but the reality is when it happened, it was going to take centuries for the impact to be undone. What you're never told is that there is a massive amount of crude oil flowing out of simple fissures in the ocean floor right now, just as part of nature. 
And contrary to what we were told about the horizon blowout, in less than a decade, oil-eating microbes have completely cleaned the spill. Nature takes care of itself quickly. Now, these are the major impacts of oil and gas, so what about nuclear? Well, from Stanford.edu, an article on the impact of nuclear power plants, specifically the environmental impact section, stated that the footprint uses uh, land, usually near water, and that might require the clearing of trees, so, you know, that's bad. Keep, keep that in mind also. They also stated that the water discharge is warmer, so there have been reduction in populations of certain fish species because of that. And the sulfur dioxide is increased in the air, causing acid rain. Remember the acid rain scare? Remember how you know we were all going to melt like the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz? So let me clear some things up with this. With, with all the environmental regulations put on everything, the water that's coming out of a nuclear power plant is cleaner than what they took in. Guarantee it. And I guarantee it's running through a series of heat exchangers to bring the temperature down to whatever acceptable range has been mandated to them by the Department of Environmental Protection. And there may have been changes to the population of certain fish, but that's locally, like at the outlet of the plant. In other words, the fish have moved slightly up or downstream. That's about all. I also guarantee that the emissions coming out of the stacks are so highly scrubbed and monitored, the chances of a major increase of acid rain is uh, is non-existent. It's zero. So those are the evil ones, for example. Now let's look at the green, environmentally friendly forms, shall we? First, wind. So remember how using land is wrong? I told you to keep that in mind. Well, Windmills take a massive footprint in order to produce a realistic amount of power. Tell me how long before the environmentalists come for a wind power because it's destroying habitats. It's disrupting migration patterns. Just like, you know, oil or nuclear. Wind is also unbelievably dangerous for birds. Just a few weeks ago, ESI Energy, a subsidiary of Next Era Energy, which apparently is one of the largest U.S. renewable energy providers, pleaded guilty to their windmills killing eagles. They were ordered to pay $8 million and were put on a five-year probation, whatever that means for a company. I don't, I don't know what that means. Are they under house arrest? I'm not sure. Bottom line, their windmills across a number of states killed at least 150 eagles, which was a combination of bald and golden eagles. My question is, what are they supposed to do? You got massive blades spinning incredibly fast, and Birds aren't looking around calculating their chances of getting past the blade tip that they likely can't even see. They're birds. They fly. We're sticking massively large, very fast thwacking sticks in the air. Birds are going to get hit and die. But this isn't acceptable. I guess maybe we need to put, what, huge screens around them with a nice fine mesh so birds can't get in it? I mean, can you even imagine? <sighs> How about solar? Well, solar also takes up a massive amount of land. Solar farms and wind farms take multiples of what a nuclear plant in terms of land takes. Wind is somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 times the amount of land to produce the same amount of power as a nuclear plant. And solar is around 60 times the amount of land. And remember, land shouldn't be disturbed and migration shouldn't be disturbed. But the biggest problem with solar is actually heat. Not heat generated, <laughs> heat focused. The solar collectors actually create massive hot zones above the solar farm and have beams of focused reflected sunlight that will literally, literally ignite birds mid-flight if they fly through the wrong spot. We're talking about thousands of birds dying mid-flight every year from the large solar farms. I mean, if, if you die in the middle of your migration, that would probably disrupt your migratory pattern, right? And, and we certainly can't have that, can we? And although windmills and solar panels don't have spills, have you ever seen a windmill fire? A lot of thick, black, likely toxic smoke coming off of those. And what do we do with the massive blades that have a relatively short lifespan before they need to be replaced? I mean, as of right now, I believe that we mostly landfill these. And as we add more windmill farms, we add more uh, windmills, and they all have more blades that will all need to be replaced at regular intervals. The point is this. If disrupting land, wildlands, habitats, migratory patterns, if that's the problem, 
How long before our government gives in to the persistent whining by the Green Movement and decide that not only can we not have oil, gas, coal, nuclear, but we can't have wind or solar because it just disrupts too many animals? If killing animals is the key, I have the same question. The tracks are being laid down right now, but the train won't come until we've moved heavily into wind and solar. Then they'll come for that too, as Mother Gaia and her animals are what really matters. Not humans, not power, not production, nothing else. Only Mother Earth. So what do we do with this? Well, first, we don't panic. God's in control. That doesn't mean that we won't do stupid things and we won't make stupid moves and severely damage our country, hurt people, etc. But it means that nothing can be done that God hasn't foreordained, so we don't need to fear. We do need to recognize that this thinking is simply an atheistic type of thinking. The idea that man is the wise, wise man, the most evolved creation of all evolutionary processes, and we are the only beings that can destroy or save the planet. I mean, how arrogant do you have to be to believe that you've evolved to a point that you are so self-aware that you've come to the conclusion that the only way to save the planet is to eliminate yourself? It put simply, you destroying you is the only hope. And you're the only one that can do it. I mean, this is literally worship of the creation rather than the creator. God has given us a fabulous planet with many wonderful animals, abundant plant life, and so many resources. And he told us to spread out, fill up the planet, take care of it, and use it. Despite what we're told by the global power brokers, you know, that we have the power to destroy the planet, that we have the power to permanently alter the natural processes of the planet, that we are doing things that will take centuries to fix, and none of that is true. God, being fully omniscient and in total control, hasn't been surprised as to what man has done because God ordained it to be done. He designed this planet to adapt and recover quickly and autonomously, and we see it all the time. Wildlife, vegetation, microbes, they all creep in as fast as we abandon an area and start taking over. In fact, there has to have been about a half a dozen species that have been thought to be extinct for many years that have popped back up in just the last couple of years. We have no idea the massive complexity that God has built into this planet and this ecosystem. So if you consider yourself to be green, that's fine. If you're an environmentalist, that's fine too. If you want to recycle, use renewable energy, any of that stuff, that's great. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing any of that, as long as it's not an idol in your life. The problem with these environmentalist groups is that their god is this planet, the environment, and the wildlife. And because they don't know, or, or more accurately, they choose to ignore God, they don't have the ability to make correct choices as to how to take care of the earth without worshiping it. They also don't have the ability to understand those of us that don't worship the earth. We're flat-out suicidal from their viewpoint, just trying to destroy the planet for our own fun and pleasure. As Christians, we should be able to articulate the biblical worldview with regard to the planet and the hierarchy that God created. We should be informed enough. In fact, I think that as Christians, we should be the most informed, the most able to point out things like the clear hypocrisy in the desire for renewable energy resources as opposed to fossil fuels or nuclear energy. We should be able to show them how they can be relieved of the burden of believing they're the only hope for this planet and for their children. And we should have an increasingly growing understanding of where we fit into God's plan and what we, humans, are called to be and do in this world. How many of you know someone that runs his or her life by the just-in-case or worst-case scenario fallacy? Now, you can probably noodle this one out on your own, but just in case, see what I did there? You're wondering what this is. It's a logical fallacy, an error in logical thinking that's used to drive an action based on the potential of something happening, despite the actual probability of that thing happening. I generally state this as possibility versus probability. Is it possible that I'll walk out of my house and be hit by an airplane crashing to the ground? Yeah, absolutely. That is possible. Is that a probable scenario? Eh, no. Therefore, I can walk out of my house with great confidence and no umbrella to stop an airplane. Conversely, is it possible that if I run down the middle of the freeway, I'll get hit by a car? Uh, yeah, again, anything is possible. Is it probable? Oh, oh goodness, yes, very probable. Therefore, I shan't be doing that. 
Unfortunately, it appears that for many, or maybe this is just the small little world I live in, it seems that people these days closely tie possibility directly to probability. Now, this is not a review about COVID, but COVID is a great, relevant, recent example. So is it possible to catch COVID? Yeah, it is possible. Uh, is, is it probable? Well, I mean, that's hard to say. I mean, I can tell you that for West Virginia, which I've been tracking since day one, just about 8% of those who have been tested actually tested positive. So from that little sphere, I'd say that it's not very probable, but it definitely has a probability worth thinking about. Now, going further, is it possible you'll die from it? Well, of course, obviously it's possible. Is it probable? Well, again, looking at no demographics, no comorbidities, just looking at the positives and the deaths resulting, West Virginia is currently sitting at about 1.36% of those that were positive actually dying. So it's not that probable, all right? And there are many other probable ways of dying that eclipse this. And then when you take into account the other factors, for most of us, it's really not probable at all. And then finally, is it possible that general masking up to and including N95 masks will stop the virus? Well, absolutely. It's possible that some little virons will get stuck on the mask fibers. Is it probable that that will stop the virus? Well, after 14 CDC studies over 40 years about general masking of the population to stop the flu virus, all coming back with the conclusion that masks don't work, after seeing multiple studies around the world on masking efforts and the neutral to negative efficacy of masks versus outbreaks, after tracking the data in West Virginia and seeing a directly negative correlation to masking versus spikes, and being a 20-plus year mechanical engineer with a solid background in filtration principles and an understanding of industrial hygiene, no, it's not probable that a mask, never designed to do so, and not fit-tested to your face, can stop a virus. Therefore, the way I govern my life during the pandemic, after about the first month of being cautious to kind of feel things out, was to live my life. I was unmasked at every possible place I could be. Could the possibilities gang up on me and take me out? Yeah, but the probability of that happening were low for my analysis, and I'd rather live my life based on probability rather than possibility. Unfortunately, vast amounts of the population choose to live by the just-in-case or the worst-case scenario fallacy and chose fear-based decisions based on possibility rather than logic, rationally reasoned decisions based on probability. Okay, I know, a long diatribe on COVID for an article that has nothing to do with COVID, but I hope the illustration gives you a very good look at what we're talking about. So in our current political climate, we are being presented nearly everything based on a worst-case scenario proposition. If we don't act now, the climate will kill us. If we don't tax more now, police and firemen will they'll all need to be fired. If we don't affirm children and whatever they think they are, they'll all kill themselves. If we don't elect Republicans, the country will turn into a communist state. If we don't elect Democrats, the country will turn into a fascist state. If we don't all take a vaccine, we'll all die. Think about just any topic in the political realm. Nearly every one of them is phrased in a way to heighten your panic senses, your fight-or-flight response, because the politicians are taught, and they hire very good people to craft messages that invoke the reaction they need in order to push their policy and garner votes. From the Cincinnati Inquirer via news.yahoo.com, headline, Pregnancy After Rape, Quote, An Opportunity? Ohio GOP lawmaker sparks outrage in abortion debate. Okay, so I want to look at this article from two perspectives. First, I want to look at what this horrible, hateful beast monster of a woman said, and then I want to come full circle back to the just-in-case side of the fallacies we've just discussed. The gist of the article, Representative Gene Schmidt, a Republican in the Ohio State House of Representatives, submitted House Bill 598, which would effectively ban abortions in Ohio should Roe v. Wade be overturned, which is really looking more and more possible. Now, quick rabbit trail, make sure you understand that overturning Roe, that does not ban abortion. It just pushes the lawmaking authority back to the states. This will result in some states banning, or coming very close at least, to banning abortion in the state, 
and other states authorizing abortion up to, and in some cases, after birth. Now, this is not invoking the worst-case scenario. I'm not trying to frighten you. This is simply fact, as it's already being discussed, and I would assume crafted in some of the most liberal of states out there. Just be aware, an overturning of Roe, although a victory, isn't the kind of victory that those of us that are anti-baby murder would like to have. This is why Representative Schmidt has introduced this bill. She's getting ahead of the game. And I'll say, hey, good for her. The problem people have with this bill is that it is a flat-out ban. There is no carve-out for rape or incest, as is the norm in most of the most strict bills or proposals out there. Representative Rich Brown, a Democrat who I'm assuming identifies as a male, so he has no right to speak on abortion, as we're often told, which is a stupid argument made by stupid people, he created a hypothetical scenario of a 13-year-old girl pregnant after being raped and asked Schmidt, quote, this bill would require this 13-year-old to carry this felon's fetus to term regardless of an emotional or psychological damage or trauma that may be inflicted upon this 13-year-old girl to deliver this felon's fetus. Is that right? Schmidt responded with, quote, Rape is a difficult issue and it emotionally scars the individual all or in part for the rest of their life, just as child abuse does. But if a baby is created, it is a human life, and whether that mother ends that pregnancy or not, the scars will not go away, period. Then referring to the choice of raising the child or putting the child up for adoption after birth, she said, quote, It is a shame that it happens, but there is an opportunity for that woman, no matter how young or old she is, to make a determination about what she's going to do to help that life be a productive human being. Just because you have emotional scars doesn't give you the right to take the life. Brown, not deterred in his goal to allow baby murder, retaliated with the fact that forcing the girl to carry and give birth to the unwanted child, um, child? Hmm. Would cause things like teasing from classmates. Quote, 13-year-old kids are mean. They're evil. I think this girl has rights every bit as much as the zygote has rights under your bill. This girl has rights, and I don't think we can lose sight of the rights of the person who was raped. Schmidt retorted, Quote, that 13-year-old girl has rights, but so does that baby inside of her. Now later, another Democrat, Representative Jessica Miranda, revealed that she had been sexually assaulted as a teen and made the statement, quote, Schmidt's comments were incredibly disrespectful and insulting to survivors of sexual violence across Ohio, myself included. We need to protect women and survivors, not rapists and pedophiles. And then finally, Representative Tavia Galanski, another female Democrat wanting to butcher children in the womb, said, quote, Pregnancy and childbirth are often traumatic and dangerous on their own. To then force a survivor of rape to carry a pregnancy to term and go through childbirth is utterly vile and only adds to the trauma they have already suffered. Okay, so let's look at a few statements and check them against logical accuracy, shall we? First, from Schmidt. No matter how a baby is created, it is still a human life. Well, okay, that's logically accurate. Disregarding arguments of viability, awareness, heartbeat, ability to feel pain, etc., the reality is no woman, which is the only gender capable of being pregnant, by the way, has ever been pregnant and birthed a blender, or a mongoose, or a smart car. The item that always comes out 100% of the time is in fact a human. If that child is a human upon exiting the chute, it was a human while it was cooking. She says rape and abuse are scarring to the victim, but aborting the child will not remove the scars. Well, both of these points are very accurate. The emotional trauma can be managed, it can be dealt with. Generally, the only effective way is through a relationship with Jesus. Anything outside of that is really masking it at best. But the scars can never be removed. That's why they're called scars. To just remove the pregnancy doesn't remove the scar. And in many cases, it adds only another scar as the realization of what has been done is added to the initial trauma. She said that despite the choice made by the child victim raising up or adopting out, this woman can help that baby be a productive human. This is true. If you kill the child, the child will not grow up to be productive. <laughs> That's an accurate statement. If the victim gives this baby a chance at life, how can we say what wonderful things that this child might or might not be able to accomplish in his or her life? We have no idea, but at least they have a chance. If 
Finally, she said that the 13-year-old and the baby both have rights. This is true. Despite what the bloodthirsty left wants to admit, the Constitution doesn't put bounds on a birth human or a viable human. From a political standpoint, that child at the point of creation has rights. Now, from a biblical standpoint, that child, that image bearer of God, has all rights afforded to him or her that any of us do. And keep in mind, this is at the point of conception. Being made in the image of God has nothing to do with looks. God is not human. He is a spirit, which means despite the way we draw him as the old man with the white beard, his image is, um, who knows, right? We don't know what he physically looks like. There is a physical look. So we being made in his image has nothing to do with looks. That means that as soon as that sperm fertilizes that egg, that is an image bearer of God. Now for fun, let's compare with the other statements made. From Brown. What can Brown do for you? Well, apparently kill your baby. Anyway, he says the term fetus. Now, they like to use this word because it dehumanizes the baby. I wonder if any of them realize that the word fetus is actually Latin for offspring. It doesn't mean clump of unidentifiable cells like they seem to think it does. Technically, every single person listening right now is a fetus at this very moment, as we are all offspring of our parents. Hello, my fellow feti. He keeps using the word felon. Require her to carry the felon's fetus to term. Okay, so first of all, murder is also a felony, as is being an accomplice to murder. So I'm not sure if he knows this. Uh, his preference, apparently, is that everyone involved is a felon. Second, and I'll admit, that this one is my opinion, although the genetic material is that of the father, the felon. Is the child really his? His intent was not to make a child. His intent was not to raise a child. His intent was purely for evil. I think in cases like this, we could at least make a philosophical carve-out that this is not his child. Now, I know, that's debatable depending on the angle you're looking at it from. It's just a thought. He talks about teasing in school and kids are mean and evil. And Yeah, I'm sure that could happen. This victim will need a massive support system around her. That should fall to the parents and the teachers and the friends, and the church. And yes, kids are evil, as are all humans. Prior to salvation, we are the most evil, vile, wretched people ever. Each of us, worse than the last. Look at the Apostle Paul. He considered himself the worst of sinners, and I'm all like, Paul, hold my Mountain Dew. We're all evil. Representative Brown, I'd feel confident in saying, not a saved individual, is just as evil as those children, if not more so. But his sense of moral superiority blinds his eyes into thinking that he's not. He says that he thinks this girl has every bit as much right as the zygote. <sighs> okay, well, the actual definition of zygote applies to humans when the sperm fertilizes the egg. As soon as that splits into two cells, which is going to be nearly immediately, the term zygote no longer applies. It would be nice if these murderous clowns in position of power would speak scientifically. <laughs> Flat earthers. But what he said is an absolute lie. He does not, in fact, believe that the victim and the baby have the same rights. He believes the victim has more rights, or more accurately, the unborn child has less rights, as he's fine with murdering a baby, but he would not be fine with murdering the 13-year-old victim. In fact, Schmidt actually truly believes that both children have equal rights. They're just at different stages of life. Schmidt has the upper hand on this one. Now, regarding Representative Miranda's comments, first, anecdotal stories. And look, I'm sorry she experienced abuse as a teen, okay? But her story has no bearing on public policy. You should never use a single or even a handful of emotional, personal stories to set the direction for a country of 350 million plus people. But that is literally one of the main tools of the emotionally driven left. Second, she says we need to protect women and survivors, not rapists and pedophiles. This is often the argument, but how is not murdering an unborn baby protecting a rapist or pedophile? It's an illogical statement. Those are quite literally two completely separate discussions. And finally, Representative Galonsky. 
Pregnancy and childbirth are traumatic and dangerous. Well, okay, sure, probably traumatic in one sense of the word, but not dangerous. Not really dangerous at all, in fact. According to the CDC, about 700 women die every year giving birth. Now, I know that's tragic. I'm not saying that that's nothing. But from an emotionalist, purely statistical viewpoint, knowing it's statistically impossible to cut that number to zero, there are many other issues that we should focus on way ahead of that one. And then she says forcing a rape survivor to give birth to the child only adds to the trauma. Yeah, I agree. It could add to the trauma. But you know what it won't do? Add the guilt and trauma of knowing you murdered your child. Regardless of how it happened, the child is half of the mother's DNA also. Now, the media only shows the idiotic, moralist masses of women who are proud of slaughtering their children. They never show the majority, the vast majority of women that suffer with depression and guilt after they realize what they've done. So looking at the arguments, who is king of the mountain here? Well, as usual, the left uses hyperbole, anecdotes, and appeals to emotion to make their point. Representative Schmidt is actually more correct in what she said, but it doesn't evoke the correct emotion. So she's painted as being evil, heartless, vile, mean, whatever. But she's correct. Regardless of how it makes you feel, facts are facts and right is right. Although the hypothetical of a woman of any age going through the trauma of a rape and becoming pregnant is terrible to think of, the reality is it does happen. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So the question is... What do you do now? I've mentioned this before, but the best argument for not aborting a baby is the SLED argument, S-L-E-D. Summarize quickly. S stands for size. People come in all shapes and sizes. Why does the fact that this baby is the size of your hand or smaller make a difference? How does size dictate the right to live or the worth of a human? L is level of development. So the child isn't as developed as a newborn or as a toddler. Does that mean the child is less human? There are people with very severe learning disabilities. Should we just kill them because they aren't at a point of development that we would like them to be? Further, a toddler isn't as developed as a teen who is less developed than an adult, and on and on we go. So where do we draw the line? Do we ascribe human worth based on development? I mean, unless we're monsters, we don't. E stands for environment. The baby is on the inside. Does that make it less human? There are elderly that are stuck in nursing homes. Are they lesser? People confined to wheelchairs. Is their value less? Infants stuck in a crib. So they're not as human as the toddlers that can wobble around the house, right? Regardless of where you live, you're still a living human. You still have equal value to other humans. And then D is degree of dependency. The unborn child isn't viable outside the womb. Viability, right? I mean, we hear that all the time, but how many people aren't viable without drugs? How many people aren't viable without, say, dialysis? How many people are hooked up to oxygen or any number of machines to keep them alive? I'm sorry, viable. What about quadriplegics? They need someone to take care of them in pretty much every way. Are they worth less because they are less viable on their own? See, dependency has nothing to do with human worth. So, Representative Schmidt is correct. Her bill is correct. And rather than arguing to give the right to the fictitious 13-year-old girl to murder her child and tell her it's fine, maybe we should be focusing on how that child is an image bearer of God, that regardless of what happened, that child is human. Both of them are human. And then give the victim, this girl, the love and support of a full community to help her heal help her cope, help her make the best decision for that child. Now coming full circle, and we'll wrap up with this, the reality is the left loves to trot out two standard phrases, rape and incest, sometimes they throw in life of the mother there, and then safe and legal, and they used to add rare on there. That's what Roe was actually based on, safe, legal, and rare, but they almost never add rare in there anymore. Is That's not their goal. More, more, and more abortions. Just make sure they're safe and legal. So, I've already told you about the life of the mother. Possible? Yes. Probable? Eh, not really. What about rape and incest? Well, here are some fun facts I found. Fewer than 1% of all abortions take place because there has been rape or incest involved to create the pregnancy. About 5% of rapes result in pregnancy, amounting to about 32,000 pregnancies annually, and about one-third of the victims didn't know that they were pregnant until the second trimester. About 85% of the women pregnant through rape or incest choose to have their baby, and about 6% of those choose to give the baby up for adoption. 
about 80% of women choosing abortion of a rape-related pregnancy now say it was the wrong choice. 95% of women who got an abortion for reasons of rape or incest also had other reasons on top of that to get the abortion. And here's a good one. 90% of abused children are in homes where the child was a result of a wanted or intended pregnancy. There are many more facts, and the link to the site that I found these on is in the notes. But this is where we're in the just-in-case fallacy, right? The left likes to bring out their sacrificial 13-year-old girl who was just raped, and how can we deny her the right to kill her child? The reality is, although the desire to abort due to rape or incest is possible, when looking at all the stats, the probability is nearly zero. This is why there are many Christians who can be okay with carving out that niche for rape and incest. Interestingly enough, a Pennsylvania law was clarified that previously publicly funded abortions in case of rape and incest to include that the assault must be reported to the authorities. When that was clarified, the number of abortions per month based on the law dropped instantly from 35 to 3. The reality is that the left uses the just-in-case fallacy to invoke the emotion of the masses that are too lazy or too busy to look up the reality of abortion and realize that 99.x% of abortions happen because the mother just doesn't want the kid for whatever reason. Personally, I think Representative Schmidt is a rock star. Good on her, right? Now, as a stepping stone, I would be tickled to see the Supreme Court rule that abortions only in the case of officially reported rape or incest is legal in the United States. That would bring the total to under 6,000 per year in the U.S. versus somewhere around 600,000 plus right now. I still think that number needs to be zero, but that would be a great step. So wrapping this up, the just-in-case or worst-case scenario fallacies prey on one thing, the emotion of fear. As Christians, we are told nearly more than anything else in the Bible to fear not. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. I can't speak for the rest of the lost world, but as Christians, we are given the ability to look at these fallacious arguments and use our minds to reason out what we're being told to believe, weigh it against the Bible, and make a decision as to if we should buy what they're trying to sell us. Abortion is murder. It's the murder of an image bearer of God. There's no way around that biblically. If you're a Christian who purports to be pro-choice, um, how? How can you reconcile the two? And may I suggest that based on the extreme incompatibility of those two positions, one of those two may not actually be true. You might want to figure out which one. For the rest of us, we need to be like and we need to support those like Representative Gene Schmidt. And we need to use our heads, not let emotion and fear of the worst case drive our decision making. Well, this has gone too far. Remember the days when we all got along, where everyone was happy all the time? The sky was a little bluer, grass a bit greener, the sun a smidge more yellow. Unless you're colorblind, in which case, <laughs> eh, you get all grays. Remember how we all smiled and laughed when we met? Even meeting strangers, we'd, we'd hug and treat them like family. Remember that? Well, if you do, it's probably because you're remembering back to your childhood days, and without looking it up, I seem to recall a study that was done that concluded we generally remember the past in a much more optimistic, positive light than it really was. Regardless, the reality is, from the time of Cain and Abel, there's been division, anger, hatred, bullying, threats, abuse, and murder. And here we go again. From the Huffington Post, HuffPost.com, headline, Republicans cheer as congressional candidate demands Fauci's execution by firing squad. Huh, let me be the first to say, this is unconscionable. The Oklahoma GOP chair, John Bennett, on a balcony in the dark of night, torches burning, he and his little mustache and nondescript armband shouting to the masses of pitchfork and assault AR-14, as Biden calls them, wielding fascist thugs, get Fauci! Oh, wait, hold on, no, wait, let me take a look here. So... The HuffPo, if you're not familiar, is nothing but a leftist rag. And unfortunately, you can't even line a cage with it because it's all internet-based. They're literally useless. In fact, I think they even lie about their own side because that's just what they do. They lie. They'd actually be more accurately classified as satire. 
but they're not funny, and they claim they're telling the facts. So let's clear things up, then go back and look through the rest of this well-written news piece. <laughs> John Bennett, in what looked to be a small, rustic venue, was talking about the absolute insanity that this country has been put through regarding COVID. He then said this, and this was quoted accurately with the video clip farther into the article. I'll at least give him that credit. Quote, and by the way, we should try Anthony Fauci and put him in front of a firing squad. And then there was laughter, and then there was a pause, and then he continued, and for the Secret Service, if they're listening, I'm not advocating we kill Anthony Fauci until he's convicted of his crimes through a court. So let me ask you, did he say anything wrong? And frankly, it doesn't matter, at least for this discussion, what the left has said to or about or threatened those on the right with, setting our boundaries simply around Fauci. Did Bennett say anything wrong? He may have said it inartfully, but to imply the claim that Fauci has committed a crime or crimes that he should be arrested for, put on trial, and if convicted, be sentenced accordingly, with the implication that the crimes he was convicted of amount to the death penalty, is just fine. And why? Because that's literally the rule of law. That's how we're supposed to handle criminals. My two cents on Fauci, and then I'll move on. There's ample evidence that he authorized directly or indirectly, but being the top dog, he's responsible, gain-of-function research, which is the leading candidate of the cause of this pandemic. Fauci has flip-flopped on every single topic. No masks, masks, double masks, while not wearing a mask himself. There's ample evidence that the injections are at the very least more harmful than any vaccine ever given in all of our history, and that trials and data have been covered up, and that he's in the middle of all this. There's ample evidence that Fauci lied to the American people over and over about what was going on because he thought we were too stupid to be able to understand one of the lesser gods like him. And there's ample evidence that he covered up and ignored all the data and evidence about the massive amount of physical, mental, developmental, and economic damage his policies were doing, using fear-mongering as his leverage. I think there's plenty to arrest him and try him on. I also think there's enough evidence to charge him with manslaughter at the very least, murder one more likely, and potentially domestic terrorism, which could or should result in a death penalty conviction. Now, you may not agree with me, and if you don't, I hope that you're even somewhat as researched as I am on the subject. Because if you're not, I'd suggest first doing the research then forming your opinion. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Back to the HuffPo. The Huffington Post likes to use a lot of inflammatory language. They want to stir up a rash emotion with their writing. They want to try to pull you into a simmering rage because it's like a drug. That feeling, even if you consciously don't like it, is one you get used to needing. So you go back for another hit. They, of course, start by selectively paraphrasing Bennett to make it sound like he's advocating murder, and of course the bloodthirsty Nazi hordes he was preaching to were all ready to make this happen. But as I said, that's not what happened at all. Bennett made the comments that we're fighting Democrats and rhinos, which we are. That we have an entire system that forced vaccines and masks on us, which is true. And that, quote, we're fighting against a system that stole the election in 2020 and nobody had been held accountable, which I'm sure you have your opinion on that. But there are definitely questions and irregularities, if nothing else, and those must be fixed before the next election. He commented that we're having woke confusion pushed down our throats, which we are. Now, to these comments, the HuffPost said that Bennett ranted, which he didn't, that he was parroting Trump's baseless accusations, which at this point they're editorializing, is they assume that they're baseless, but they don't know that. They don't seem to understand his comment about wokeness. Uh, apparently, they, they've just never heard of that term. <laughs> and then they say, quote, Then came his sinister line about Fauci, who has been targeted by repeated death threats for his public health work during the coronavirus pandemic. And? I mean, that's not what Bennett did. In fact, this is where I'll put out the hashtag MeToo card. How many politicians 
celebrities, athletes, and public figures have had death threats? How many common, everyday people have posted something online in the last two years and had death wished upon them, or upon their kids, or upon their parents? I can raise my hand on that. <laughs> and again I say, and? Oh, fun follow-up question. How many of those wishes of death were made by those on the right and those on the left? Yeah, this is not exclusively, but it is primarily a tool of the woke, inclusive, tolerant, loving left. But again, this isn't what I've called for and this isn't what Bennett called for. We've expressed our desire for the judicial system to be followed and based on our belief of who Fauci is, what he knows, what he purposefully did, it would result in a death penalty as the sentence for his crimes. I know they want to paint him as just a kind old man, just trying to help people, but he's far, far from that. Now, the article goes on to say that Fauci has said that he's had to hire security, that he's had a, quote, barrage of conservative criticism, vitriol, and violent threats that he's received for his public service advice during the pandemic. But see, who cares if he's had criticism and vitriol? If you want to be in the public eye, expect that. Get over it. Is that the Christian thing to do? No, but the majority of the population aren't Christians. And Christians, as much as we'd like not to, have a limit to where we are going to criticize or even get nasty about it. Doesn't make it right, just makes it true. As for these violent threats, the HuffPo pulls out the Fox News' Jesse Waters comment, saying that he urged us to ambush Fauci and go for the kill shot. But what Waters actually said was within an eight-minute discussion and in context was talking about holding Fauci's feet to the fire. Oh, wait, no, that's more violence. With regard to cornering him with questions, making Fauci answer for his flip-flopping on absolutely everything, making him answer questions regarding these mandates he seems to be able to call for. In fact, even the leftist fact-checking site Snopes called this false. They didn't even give it one of their weaker ratings that they like to do. Just false. But again, HuffPo doesn't really get too concerned with the facts or the context. And poor, poor Fauci said, quote, The only thing that I have ever done throughout these two years is to encourage people to practice good public health practices, to get vaccinated, to be careful in public settings, to wear a mask. <laughs> well, no. What he's done is destroy lives, force people to get injections they don't want, destroyed businesses, deeply, deeply harm children, destroy the economy, force people to die alone, demonize and withhold various treatments that have shown good efficacy against COVID while mandating treatments that don't help and arguably have killed many, many people. He's done a little more than just trying to be a good guy. So do I want him dead? Should we want him dead? Well, I would like for justice to be done. If he's done what it appears he's done, by the information that's being slowly revealed, he's either a naive, bungling criminal at best, or at worst, an evil, twisted murderer along the lines of Joseph Mengele, or worse. But save for the small handful of crazies that exist on this planet, neither I, nor Bennett, nor any other Republican, conservative, or Christian want him gunned down in the street. We simply want justice. In fact, all humans actually want justice. The concept of justice isn't just a Christian thing. Unfortunately, due to sin, there are different ideas about justice. Some are very, very wrong. But the reality is, is that we all want justice, whatever that looks like in our minds. Paul addressed this inherent knowledge that all man has in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 2, starting at verse 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The law being referred to here is the law of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, usually found in Exodus 
Leviticus and or Deuteronomy, you know, the sections where your eyes glaze over, where you wish you were reading the genealogies instead. But these, for millennia, were the law. God set up very specific rules and laws so that justice would be done, so that a sinful humanity wouldn't be allowed to run wild, and ultimately to show the futility of trying to obey the law of an infinitely holy God, showing how much we needed someone to step in and do it for us. But as Paul stated, man, even those that never heard the 600 plus laws, had it written on their hearts, minds, and consciences. We know right and wrong because it's built into us. I found one website that said they found 28 of the Old Testament laws where violation resulted in the death penalty. This was justice as prescribed and mandated by God. But we live in the New Testament era. We don't have to worry about those pesky laws, right? Jesus nullified them all. Well, no, not really. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there are different views as to how the specific Old Testament laws apply today. One of the most common is that if they're repeated in the New Testament, then they apply today. If not, well, that's why we can eat a cheeseburger and have clothes made with different fabrics, and why we don't stone our children when they disobey. Today, we live in an era of grace and mercy, which are both still just. God can and does send people to hell. Those that aren't saved will go to hell because of their sin, no matter how big or small their sin is, as it's not the size of the sin, but the one you sinned against. And they will be there for all eternity, as again, the payment for sins against an infinitely holy God take an eternity to pay. But God sent his son, Jesus, to live the perfect life, fulfill the law perfectly, then die a wrongful death to pay the penalty for all those that his father had given him. Because of this sacrifice, an infinite sacrifice, those that are saved are given mercy. The holy judge of the universe can forego the penalty to those that are saved because the penalty has been taken care of. So mercy, which is just for God to offer, is extended to his children. At no time will God or can God be unjust. There will never be injustice metered out by God to any of his creation. As we are made in God's image, we have an innate desire for justice to be done as well. And although our laws don't align with the Old Testament laws, and they don't necessarily align with the Ten Commandments, and they don't align with the greatest commandment as given by Jesus, they do align with the laws that are written on our hearts. So all that to say, if someone is suspected of murder, the desire is for justice to be done. For those that believe he's innocent, they feel justice is a full pardon. For those that believe he is guilty, they feel justice is the forfeiture of freedom, possibly of life itself. The disconnect we're having as a society is that there are some that feel Fauci is a loving, caring, tirelessly working public servant trying to save lives, while others feel he's a fraud, an abuser, a liar, and a murderer. And the only way to determine who he is is to put him on trial and allow discovery of any and all evidence. Then let justice reign. If he's innocent, fine. If he's not, then a penalty must be paid. That being said, I personally don't want him to go to hell. I believe by looking at his fruit, that's exactly where he's going. But I'm not the gatekeeper. I can't pronounce final judgment on him. I can only look at his life, his words, his actions, and make the best assessment I can. And it's not good. But as long as he's alive, he could potentially be one of God's children. Someone's going to need to reach him relatively quickly. And that doesn't look good either. We can pray for him, though. As for us, let's not get caught up in the hype. And let's not lament if Fauci passes into eternity without earthly justice being done. As I've said many times, God is sovereign. God is just. Whether in this life or the next, we can rest assured that God will act perfectly with regard to Fauci or others or you or me based on his laws, his justice, his mercy, his offer of salvation and our choice to either repent and believe or ignore him and live how we want. So we should desire and pursue justice on this earth. We should enact justice or enact mercy as deemed appropriate. But even more importantly, if you know you're saved, you can thank God for his mercy and get about the business of showing others how to move from just punishment to mercy as well. If you're not saved, know that eternal justice awaits, but that just punishment can be turned into mercy when you bend the knee. Admit that you are the worst of the lawbreakers, as am I and that you believe Jesus is who he says he is, 
and did what the Bible said he did. Put simply, repent and believe. And don't wait. You don't know when you'll be called before the judge, and justice will need to be satisfied. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.